Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon. Today, we're taking a look back at some of the important topics that we covered on the many podcasts over the last year. We've been very fortunate to have three CFO powerhouses join us. It's been quite interesting to hear their perspectives on topics like forecasting, budgeting, and how they view investment decisions for their companies. Today, we'll start with a segment from our interview with Murray Denno. He's the former CFO at Adobe, Postini, Dolby Labs, Atlassian, and Rubrik. Murray provides great insights in this segment on three things. One, how to sell to a champion that reports directly to the CFO. Two, how a CFO values the trade-off between price and value. And three, what a CFO looks for in both the sale and the implementation of the product. Hey, Murray, when you were a CFO, I'm just curious. Did you ever have any external salespeople, especially early in the early stages of the sales process, contact you just to understand, you know, company initiatives, critical projects, ask for coaching on key personnel to contact or see if that's something that the company was looking at investing in in the future? I never allowed it. You never allowed it. What do you mean? Well, so let's say, you know, CIO always reported to me. I would never take a CFO job unless IT reported to me. Okay. And so any software purchase, I felt that if I got too involved too early, I undermined the CIO. And instead of it being sort of their decision and their commitment to the success of implementing that software, because I got too involved in it, I, I, got, I let them off the hook. So they could, we could talk about it, the CIO and I, and explain things, but I never let a salesperson ever get close to me. Yeah. Now, with that said, there was a sales guy at SAP. They got close to me. And the CIO said, you got to meet this guy. And it really wasn't so much about the deal because it was kind of set but you got to meet this guy. And so I met with him and, you know, he was a colorful personality and I liked him, but he'd listened to our earnings calls and he'd read analyst reports and he knew enough about our product and our organization that I said, wow, he, he's making an effort to understand our business. Mm. And, he, and, and I could tell that he actually put time into it and he wasn't hundred percent right on some things, but I was really impressed. And he became a personal friend after that. Mm. And um, that, uh, and so then it got, I remember there was a quarter where our CIO was, you know, working him too hard at the very end and playing hard to get in order to sign a deal. And the sales guy contacted me and I would became an advocate for him to get that damn CIO <laughs> to agree to the thing so that he, 
<laughs> so the sales guy could make his quarter at SAP. Yeah. Uh, that's a great so, story. But yeah, the person differentiated themselves because they totally. knew so much about you and your business. Correct. And that person obviously went on and ended up running sales organizations at companies. And uh, you could see it coming. And it really wasn't that much effort. And he was totally a sales guy. I mean, if you met him, you know, he's in sales. But that, that didn't bother me at all. I, I like the fact that he genuinely put the effort out to understand our business. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was, sounds like everybody should do that, but it was unique. Yeah. But if somebody called you up and knew about, you know, critical projects that might have been in your 10K or in your annual report and just said, hey, could you just tell, I don't need to know anything else, but I just would like to understand who is in charge of running that corporate initiative. Would you, would you coach him or no? I wouldn't even coach. talk to him. You wouldn't talk to him. Yeah. Wouldn't talk okay. to him. And maybe I'm different that way, but um, I want to, I want the leaders that report to me to own that, but I'll meet with them at some point. Um, but it's when that CIO or the head of real estate or something like that, they've already kind of got their deal that I've worked with them on. And we're kind of at a point, might as well meet with the people. Okay. Now, when you would meet with them, and let's say it's a major purchase, would the really good salespeople come prepared with what I typically would call a CFO-ready business case? A really good cost justification on a business case where it understands you know, the project, it understands the issues, it understands product fit, those types of things. Have you had people come prepared? No. Well, I, never, I never allowed that meeting. It was yeah. more deeper. Is that again because of the reporting structure? Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's, you need to convince the person working for me that this is how they want to spend their finite dollars and why it's going to help our company. They've got to be convinced, okay, before I'm never going to overrule them. They, they got to own that. But I'm talking to them, you know, this, the CIO and I are talking it all the way through. So I'm familiar with the whole thing. So in okay. effect, it still got to them. Yeah. Right. Just being through really the, the decision maker wasn't so much me. Yes, I approved it, but the decision maker was a person reporting to me and they were empowered by the stuff that came from the salesperson that maybe shared some of that with me. Ah. So, they, so they had to be prepared. It just, it just went that way. I'll right. tell you so there this. were meetings where the CIO, I'm just a question where the CIO and an external salesperson no. did, no, you left it down. Again, you pushed it back down. Yes. Okay, got it. You're pretty That's how I did it. About that. Yes. <laughs> and so we get to now buying something. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to make the decision, but it's not necessarily done. Then I might meet the person. We might go out for dinner or they come by the office. And you know, the crazy thing is, and I think we all know this. I like buying stuff from people I like. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, it's, it's, if I met the person they came off, you know, real sort of slippery feeling, then it, it would really bother me. But if I felt it was someone like, hey, I like this person. They're a business partner. They take an interest in our business. Kind of like this guy at SAP. And then, then it was like, okay, I really want to do a deal with these guys. And I kind of keep an eye out for them. Like, is there more business we can do with them? If it makes sense, you know, within our constraints of our financial model and what our strategy is around, you know, our enterprise systems and things like that. So that's kind of, kind of how, how I managed it. Uh, and I felt that it worked pretty darn well. Yeah. I mean, you managed it 
in your way and it worked really well. Yeah. I, but the backbone of my question was, you know, were a lot of the external salespeople fully prepared, like you said, that where they understood the business, they came with a cost justification and a, and a real, real business case. And again, yeah. you, you pushed it down, but that's, that, that was the backbone. So, so let's go ahead, Murray, go ahead. Man. I'll, I'll just say, just on that, remember what that salesperson that were effect with when they were effective, the CIO was selling me. Yeah. yeah. Right. With their, with a lot of their information in addition yeah. to their own. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. So that's where I was going. Advocate yeah. for the salesperson. Yes. So then I saw commitment by that CIO reporting to me that this is a good deal. We can implement this thing and we can improve our company. And here's kind of why and all of the, all of that. They became the salesperson to me. Yeah. Let's play that out a little bit. So what you're really saying is the expectations of cost justification, those all have to be in place. Your, your expectations is that the, uh, the person who's being sold to, like in this example, the CIO, um, they would utilize all that information and then bring to you for discussion. What do you expect? So let's play that out. I'm a seller listening to this saying, okay, I heard this loud and clear. I have to, I can't sell to a CFO. Um, I'm going to sell to the CIO and then I'm going to collaborate with the CIO to help them sell to the CFO. In this example, we're using. Sometimes those people don't get it. Sometimes the internal people don't get it and they go, Murray and I, we're great. Known him a long time. He's a good dude. Um, I can get things approved. I got it in my budget or what have you, which might be true. But what advice would you give the seller to prepare the heads of business units that are ultimately going to the CFO. So long story short, sorry, what are your minimum expectations that you'd have to see for some type of purchase that would come to your level? Well, obviously cost is one element, but I, what I really want to understand is, is more strategically why you know, acquiring this piece of software, if you will, how does that fit into our strategy as a company that we're, so let's say that we were trying to change something around um, how we're going to engage with channel partners yeah. or what we're going to do around pricing and packaging. You know, these kind of use cases, like are we, we know that we have to do it. Why is this solution going to be the best one for us? Which other ones did you look at? How committed are they to our success? What's the schedule here? Did you get buy-in across the organization, right? Because most of these things are, these are business processes that you're trying to automate across the organization. So it's not like a, a departmental purchase. It's a company-wide initiative that cuts across other organizations. So are those other organizations committed in terms of their focus and attention and resources to make sure this cross-functional process that we're going to, to automate through software is going to be successful, then we'll get around to the price. Because ultimately, if you paid 10% more or 10% less, that will not dictate the success. It's did, did you improve this business process in the company that made us more competitive? 
that allowed us to better serve the customer, et cetera. And if, we, and, and if you do that, then it's like, it doesn't really matter what you paid for the software. Okay. And so I'll spend more time around that than it's going to be, you know, did we get the, you know, squeeze the last dollar out or not? Because if it's coming down, the only reason why we're buying it is because it's cheap. You know, you might as well just give up now because that's not why you're buying it. Johnny, I don't know if you heard, but buried in Murray's explanation is basically the three whys. I just, I just wrote them down. People. You did? <laughs> yeah. Well, we tell salespeople a lot of times to qual if, you, if they get up and let's say a forecast call Murray. He's tell we basically, there's three really easy questions you could ask. Say, why does a company have to buy? Have to. Why do they have to buy from us? Right? Versus the competition. And why do they have to have it now? Why can't they wait? Why can't they use something else? Why can't they delay any of those things? And it's funny listening to you it, in your explanation with, with those three whys. You know? Yeah. Johnny, there's another one that I'm hearing Murray talk about, yeah. especially in software today. I call it the collaborative yes, which means Murray's got a, Murray, the CFO, is looking at it from the vantage point of who else is this going impact. Yes. I heard and that. Have you included, have you included others? Cause mm -hmm. it's just going to wind up coming back to you as a problem anyways. Right. Murray. Correct. See a CFO is also the chief process officer. Yeah. And so if you think of, you know, the traditional things like, you know, lead to cash or procure to pay. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, you know, on the go to market side and things like that. The companies that scale the best are the ones that have really good processes and you need technology to automate these processes. So, you know, if you've got it where the HR organization is just buying something with, you know, I just, it's good for HR, but it, it impacts like everybody else in the organization. It'll end up being a pretty ineffective implementation. Nobody's happy et cetera. And fortunately, the vendor will be perceived as, oh, it's bad software. Well, it actually was great software. The problem was, is that it was not implemented correctly because there really wasn't more of a, a design and a strategy around how we're going to improve an overall business process that we then use the technology to sort of enable. And I view my role is I don't want to miss the opportunity to improve that process and have to go redo it again later probably with different people and all that stuff is uh, let's, let's do it right up front. And I think the salesperson that can kind of understand the use case and really, you know, um, I think in terms of how is this going to be successful in the organization beyond just selling to the HR leader who might be the decision maker, the long-term value of, uh, to the company and ultimately the, the amount of business that the salesperson is going to close is going to go way up over time. So um, that's kind of, but it's a big part of my role is, is chief process officer. It doesn't sound exciting, but boy, when you get it right, all the employees see it. Yeah. It sounds like that would have been one of the questions that you might've asked your CIO, like, okay, this sounds great, but tell me how we're going to implement this successfully. Exactly. It's a yeah. sales organization. Are they committed to this? Who on their team is going to, you know, participate, et cetera, to make sure this thing works. Uh, and we can really, you know, get the value out of it and accelerate our business. Um, those are the kind of questions that I would always ask because 
all you're doing is you're getting a better understanding of how successful the project's going to be downstream. And would you expect there to be success metrics in place? So rather than you put them in place, would, would you expect uh, the line of business leader to be able to tell you, here's how we're going to measure success? Yes. Um, clearly, there's going to be some things in terms of, you know, what is it that we're going to, you know, the scope of the project, what we're going to accomplish from it, you know, what the schedule is uh, and how realistic that is. Um, but I've, like, I've never really been really big on a lot of those metrics. And I've never liked these, um, you know, various committees, you know, that you get together across the organization. I'm like, I'm not really, I'm not big on that. It's, I'm probably tend to be a little more prescriptive. Let's make decisions, you know, a little faster. But to me, it's just the line of business with a CIO or it could be a CIO and I'm the line of business leader for what we're trying to do is, do they have a strategic orientation of what this is going to do to enable our business to be more successful and support our initiatives as an organization? And the more you get into all that, you guys, you know, all this stuff. The more you succeed in all that, price becomes less and less important, you know, because it's the value you're delivering is where all the upside is. You know, it, we had a lot of SAP and I'm a big supporter of SAP. And it was like, we have to be on the most current versions at all times. We have to be the first in the world to upgrade to the next version because we're the ones that are benefiting from the new technology. If we're late, then it's just a commodity. So relative to our competitors, et cetera. We want to be right on the bleeding edge on a lot of this stuff because we have capabilities others don't have, not to mention it inspires all the employees inside the company that they can go home with the dinner table and talk about we're the first at doing this or that. And that's inspiring to them. Yeah. But I don't know if you noticed also like built into Murray's explanation is muchness and sureness and ease of doubt. How how much is this going to cost? How much am I going to save? How easy is this to install? How easy is this to learn? How sure of you that I'm going to be successful? Which of your customers can I point to, to be, to be sure? And soon, like how soon can I get the return? How soon are we going to implement it? Right. Those are really tip, typical questions that uh, any executive buyer is going to ask salespeople. Absolutely. Got to be prepared. Yeah. What I'm also hearing is the success story. So success metrics have to be in place, obviously, but your, your point, Murray, what I heard you say is success story. What does success look like as it relates to our strategic plan? What does it look like as it uh, focuses on the collaboration between other organizations and the impact? So that's just as important in your mind as the price of what we're buying. I would say it's more important. Far more important. I mean, the last thing is price. Everybody wants a good deal. That's just the reality. Everybody wants a good deal. We want that in our personal lives, et cetera. But ultimately, it's really not that important. All the other stuff is in place. That's the key. It's a little bit like, you know, when you're acquiring companies in M&A. I mean, it's if you get so focused on price and you try to buy it on the cheap, you're probably buying a bad company. Etc. And the ultimate success of the company will not be the price you paid. It's did you get that strategically correct and you integrated it and all, all the things we all know. So you just don't want to overweight the price and have you make a, a short-sighted decision and you end up not, you know, delivering the value the company really needs to kind of get to the next level. 
A key takeaway for selling at the top of any organization is that it's always about de-risking the product implementation to obtain long-term value. Now to an interesting exchange with Jim Kelleher. He's a four-time CFO at IM Logic, Activio, Logman, and now at Drift. Jim talks about what metrics he views every quarter and the importance of accurate forecasting by the sales force. All right, Jim, scenario. Quarter just ended, or the let's even the month just ended, and you're gonna go look at some of the metrics and the results. Where's your eye go? Like what what metrics is your eye going to immediately? But we do things by quarter versus versus month here, John, as, as, as you know, and probably as you have done. So we do it by, by quarter. We don't we, we look at it by month, but we don't get too excited by month. We're, we're really right. focused by quarter. The, the first is the top line, right? What is bookings done? Right. Versus bookings grown, right? How much has new business grown versus expansion grown, uh, you know, in the in the business, right? And so is my new, um, am I adding new logos? The second is we look at um, productivity. And so, so productivity rep on both fully onboard reps and then ramp reps, right? And so we're looking at productivity. How's our productivity go? The third item that we're focused on is then it, it switches a little bit, goes to the customer. Like, like talk to me about retention. How did our gross dollar retention rates, how did our net dollar retention rates go? Uh, and so, so that is yeah, another big component of our top line. And then fourth, it a little bit shifts to people, I would say. And in, and in this era, we're focused on um, how's the attrition look in the company and how did we do about adding you know, new employees, in particular in the quota caring areas or the go-to-market areas where we wanted to add it. Those are the four things we really look at from a company perspective. The fifth would be cash, how we burn yeah. it cash-wise, right? Sure. Um, but, but for me... Little bit that's always the easiest because because if I get the bookings right and I get my retention right, um, I, I'm not gonna miss on cash going out the door, right? And that we can manage, right? In any our our, our place is typical of any software company, 75% of the expense is headcount, right? And so if I'm controlling headcount, I'm controlling spend. So I usually know if I'm missing cash, I'm missing because I missed the booking summer, right? Or the bookings were later in the quarter and I didn't collect the cash on it. Right? Yeah, right. But those are kind of the five things that we look through. So let's stay on that because a lot of times if you're a brand new sales rep, maybe a first time, you know, leader at the at the first, you know, first management level. You always wonder why is this company just constantly on me for my forecast, my forecast, my mm. forecast. So from a CFO perspective, can you talk to the salespeople out there as to why forecasting and accurate forecasting is so paramount to the business? You've kind of alluded to it already, but you know, let's be more explicit. It creates huge value. That's why it's so important, right? For your ability to forecast the business. Um, it means that you have an ability to then invest in stuff uh, without having to like, you know, think about it sort of after the fact a little bit. Right. So, so if you can forecast anything, right, you can forecast the weather, you're better off, right? Like, like, okay, I'm going golfing today because it's 75 degrees and sunny here in Boston, as opposed to, you know, my rain this afternoon. I don't know. Right. Um, so the ability to forecast stuff gives you the flexibility in which to make the right, you know, management decisions. And it right. is critical as you get 
to the public markets, right? The, most companies do not go public or go public later because of their ability to forecast their business, right? And you can miss a window, right? Uh, um, but but you know when 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 we have a company ready and lined up, I think to get to the public markets, the, the for six months before we are focused on the forecastability of this business. And am I going to be able to speak to the street about what our numbers are at? Right, that is the most important thing. So so I think for two reasons it's really important. One, it helps you plan the business. And two, it really helps you then scale the business, right? Yeah. And on planning the business, as you referred to earlier, it's all about headcount. So if I forecast very high and come in very low, then the consequences are that I overhire, right? And if I forecast too low and I come in really high, then I may not have the people to support the business because you didn't hire. That's right. Yeah. Perfectly right. And particularly, it becomes even more important because you got a ramp time. Right. And so you've got a ramp time for what are carrying people. Right. Um, and so you got to forecast. You got to be looking almost six to nine months in advance with this ramp. Time, right. And so therefore, forecastability becomes even more important. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of young sellers out there, Jim, they get a little gun shy. Uh, they understand that forecasting is important. They get a little gun shy. They you know, when back in our day, we called it sandbagging, but I don't want it to be so negative. It's like just people don't understand the ramifications and how that, you know, how uh, you, you really think you're going to do X, but you forecast X minus because you don't want to be that person that misses the forecast. And I've seen some cultures that just do such a poor job of this forecasting pressure and, you know, they make it all about compliance and they don't really educate. They really don't educate the sellers on what it actually what it actually means. And so how do you deal with that? Like you'll get a number and then it just rolls up. It just rolls up to your bosses, the sellers out there it just rolls up to your bosses. And then they've got to make these big management corrections. What advice and dialogue do you have in the sales organization on how to really build a good culture around forecasting accuracy and specifically, you know, forecasting low can be just as negative as forecasting high and missing. Yeah. And, and I think you need to penalize might be too strong a word, but to the extent you have somebody who's constantly forecasting low, you have to educate that person on, like, look, the, the, the fact that you're 150% of your forecast for three quarters in a row, you know, it, it means that you're not doing a good job forecasting. Right. And, and that's, you know, I'm not quite as big a problem as if you're 50% of the forecast, right? right. Uh, because I haven't gone out and spent on it. But but a, a part of your job as you, as you mature as a person and as a manager is to be able to forecast a business because of how important it is. So so we, we try to push through, like, it's not just about you making a number, but it's like, you know, us helping, you know, run the company and, and um you know, invest in the right areas and develop them as, as professionals around it. I've always thought of accurate forecasting as from a sales leader perspective, that it tells me how intimate you are with your people and intimate with the accounts that they're calling on. And when you are forecasting really low or really high all the time, and you're always off, you're kind of signaling to me that you don't really you're not really intimate with your people. You're not really intimate with the accounts. Otherwise, there's no reason. If you are, there's no reason to 
not yeah, having yeah, accurate forecasts. Yeah. Yeah, not to say that it's luck, but it's kind of a little bit luck, right? That 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 the numbers that are coming in, then, right? Yeah, and I think it's it's also good. You guys would know better than I, but but the ability then, okay, if I know Johnny Mac is going to be under, like I need to go make it up, and who can I go to that says, can I make this up? I need a half a million. I need a million, right? And you you call around, and you got it. You got a million, you know, and and if people are intimate enough with their deals, they can figure out, OK, yeah, I, I can try to go push one this quarter. Right. Um, right. And that that's what I think creates a well-run, you know, sales or go to market organization. And here is Hope Cochran. Hope Cochran is the former CFO at Clearwire and King Digital. Many of you may know King Digital since they're the designers of the famous game app Candy Crush. Currently, Hope is Managing Director at Madrona. I got a quick question for you. I'm dying to ask this because um, in, in my experience, the balance of predictability, and we have a lot of sales professionals and CROs and sellers and, and this, this, this importance of the forecast, number one, why it's so important, but then balancing predictability and overachievement has always been a very difficult conversation. And so could you kind of share with us your experience and the advice that you've given people around, you know, wanting to overachieve a number, and, but also wanting to be very predictable? Like what's been, what's been your experience or your advice in that? We have scars on that as well. Yes, we sure. all do. And I always say, I think this is very much due to being in the seat of the CFO. Overachievement's great, but truly I want it to be accurate. Right. This is my objective. Like, I don't want to be under, I don't want to be over. I want to be as close to the accuracy as I possibly can. And, you know, when you think about those monthly meetups and we go through the pipeline and we review the deals, um, I just hope and I want to establish the ability for everyone to be as transparent and honest as they can and to take the game plan out of it. I know that's hard. And I know that there's a lot of reasons why the game plan comes in. People have career ambitions, et cetera. But that's the moment where we can all help each other. We've got seasoned sales folks in the room that can read a deal and say, have you met with these, you know, folks in the, in the deal that can help you push it through. We've got, you know, folks like myself who've seen a lot of contract language. I could help you think through different creative ways to structure a contract that would work both for the financial and the sales folks. So it is a moment to be as honest and transparent as possible. So we can all get to the right answer. Um, and I go for accuracy. How about the balancing of the budget? Like this one has always been difficult for me. The balancing of the budget, which is so critical to the outcome and a CFO can look at that sometimes in my experience and say, okay, the number's not high enough. Therefore, um, you know, you need to do, you're going to overachieve it. And that's, there's consequences of that because we could grow, we could fund a little bit easier, but then also the, the knowing that, you know, if you want a better valuation, you have to grow and the budget that you put together, you need to stretch it a little bit. What has been your, what's your operating rhythm around that? And the, the, when you see plans, what advice do you give people on how to balance that? Because I tell you, that topic is coming up a lot for me lately. 
Yeah. And lately, really what the markets have valued is growth, right? Yeah. So you have to be mindful about what we're looking at in terms of the markets, as well as the strength of the balance sheet. Mm. So assuming that the company has a good cash balance and we're not dealing with debt or you know areas of, of losing too much cash, clearly we want to propel growth. And you know, when I think about the role of the CFO, we are the area that all constraints come into us. <laughs> you know, we're trying to balance like how the balance sheet needs to look with how much we can spend, which how can we get that growth metric? And really, it's a big puzzle that all needs to fit together. So as I look to invest or spend dollars, I want to spend dollars in areas that will give me healthy growth. And by healthy, I mean it makes sense. Like I'm not going to throw a bunch of money at marketing and sales that lead to diminishing returns. But if I can put money to work in marketing and sales, that's going to propel the growth, then that makes sense. So you're constantly looking at how you can balance those. But, you know, in certain companies today, they're at the beginning of their growth trajectory and they want to make sure they obtain the users now so that in the future, you look at the LTV of those customers and those dollars you spend to gain the users now really makes sense from a long-term perspective in the company. Right. There's always big trade-offs there. The CF, good CFOs that I've seen, you bring them something that says, I think we could you know, sell more or salespeople could be more pr productive if we had this. And then the good CFOs say, say, okay, I hear you. That's going to cost us X. Let me go back and see what trade-offs are. And they come back and they say, here's some things that you may have to give up in order to get that. Right. And um, then it becomes like a really good discussion between the CFO and the top salespeople or, or the marketing people's and versus just no. Like we're not going to change. It has Absolutely. to be collaborative, as you said. I yeah. really view the role as the CFO as the one that is sitting next to the CEO and all the visions and ideas that are coming from there. The sales folks saying, you know, I could sell more if we had this product feature. You know, they have to be the ears of all of the things that they're hearing in the company and then synthesize it into a plan that is balanced and can work. Um, I really tried hard and still do to never say no. Mm. That is not part of the vocabulary. The vocabulary is interesting. Let's talk through what that looks like and let me go back and do some work on it. Yeah. So Dr. No is a misnomer. I was using that phrase <laughs> totally wrong in my career. Dr. No is not true. Or Ebenezer, we used to call it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It had some I think that's a lot of the companies I've been involved in, right? Like I tend to gravitate towards high growth situations. Yeah. Um, and so that is the mindset. Now in other industries, you know, it's, it can be very different. Now that's definitely some fantastic insights for you from some of the best CFOs in the software industry. Thanks again to all our listeners for listening to another episode of The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.